Thank you for listening to the Moral Revolution podcast. In this session, Chris Vallotton will be sharing a message entitled, God's Most Amazing Creation. This is the second message in a three-part series. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. This is very interesting because um, we, we basically have three main portions of Scripture in the, New, in the New Testament, in the New Covenant, where we get most of our restrictions from. And what's interesting about it is there is nothing that I can find written in the Old Covenant that restricts women. Now, the priesthood pass uh, from, from sons. So we know that the priesthood itself passed from, from men to men, if you will. But there's nothing in the, in the Torah, there's nothing in the Old Covenant that actually prevented a woman from teaching, from exercising authority, or from leading. As a matter of fact, I'm kind of skipping ahead, but as a matter of fact, um, in Exodus chapter 15, verse 20, Miriam is called a prophetess. In Judges chapter 4, verse 4, Deborah is called a prophetess. In 2 Kings 22, 14, um, I can't pronounce her name, it's H-U-L-D-A-H, is called a prophetess. And there's six named, actually named prophetesses in the Old Covenant. And so although they weren't priests, we don't know of any priests, uh, that I know of at least, that were, that, uh, in other words, women weren't part of priesthood, they definitely had authority, and they definitely led and taught in the Old Covenant. It, it, it feels strange to me that the New and Better Covenant would have greater restrictions on women than the Old Covenant when the reason why women were restricted in the first place is because of the curse. Because remember, from creation, they were supposed to be joint heirs. They were both called to take dominion. It was only after the fall that the woman, God said to the woman, and your husband shall rule over you. That was not original creation. That was after the fall. When Jesus died on the cross, he broke the curse, and you even know Romans 8, not only did he break the curse over humanity, but he also broke the curse over creation. That's why it says in, in creation eagerly waits the revealing of the sons of God, for creation was subjected to fertility, not willingly, but because him who subjected it in hope that creation could be released from slavery to corruption into the glory of the, sons of, the glorious sons of God. In other words, when God... When God when God cursed the serpent, when he cursed Adam and he cursed Eve, he also cursed the ground. So creation itself was under a curse. And that's why Jesus said, this kingdom shall, the kingdom of God shall be preached to all creation. The, the, the gospel wasn't just for humans, it was also for creation. Creation was to be released from slavery to corruption. In other words, the creation was slaves to corruption into the glory of the children of God. Are you following me at all? So, uh, um, it's, it's, it seems like, it seems to me that a, an inferior covenant should, ha- should not have superior benefits. <laughs> Just a thought. Do you know how important this is, what we're talking about today? I'll tell you how important this is. The Civil War... When I wrote um, the Heavy Rain book, 
I did some study on the Civil War, and I'm definitely not an expert by any means. I mean, I'm a Google freak. That's about it. (laughs) What you can learn on Google, I didn't even learn everything you can learn. I mean, you you Google the Civil War, and it's like you could spend the next six months reading documents. And some of them, you know, the crazy thing about Googling stuff, and it's probably always been this way, but people don't agree with one another. And if you don't know what you're talking about, you're like, you get up and share something, and someone sends you, hey, Google this, and it says the exact opposite of what Johnny, the historian expert, says. So, you know, you're like, I don't know what to believe. But, um, but, but here's uh, some things that most uh, historians, at least Christian historians, agree with. That the Civil War was perpetuated, and some believe even started, because of the Christian view of slavery. That Christians, because of the way that Paul wrote to, in Colossians 3, for instance, 3.22, Colossians 4.1, Ephesians 6.5, uh, where he told to, uh, slaves to obey their masters, and he told masters how to treat their slaves, that they took those three passages in the New Covenant, and they, they um, ascertained that God was in, that God agreed with slavery, and in fact, God had ordained slavery. And so um, when you read, many of the historians believe that it was actually our Christian foundation you know, we were actually founded as a Christian nation, one nation under God. Was, we were actually founded as a Christian nation, contrary to popular opinion. We weren't founded as uh, just a one nation under God. We were, actually, we were actually founded as a Judeo-Christian country. And um, a, a lot of historians believe that it's that foundation that actually helped us but in the, in the Civil War, it actually hurt us because many people weren't fighting just for the benefit of the economic benefit of slavery. Many people felt that they were fighting for the uh, purity of the, of the gospel. Many Christians, many pastors led, um, this, led southern armies because they believed that they were standing up for scriptural purity. And the result of that was 618,000 people died. More people died in the Civil War than all of the wars put together in America. And here's my point. They got it wrong, and 618,000 people died. I mean, what you believe has consequences, because what you believe has behaviors. And I, this is my personal opinion. This is, not, this is not necessarily the opinion of our sponsors. <laughs> I believe that the most oppressed people group in the world is not an ethnic group, but a gender. I, I, believe, that, I believe that women are the most oppressed people group in the world and have been for generations. And I believe that the, that the enemy, the, the serpent, if you will, that, has, that is hostile towards women has created a culture to oppress women for generations. You know what's odd is, you know, we see that Eve failed first in the garden. That, you know, if you believe the Bible, that's what it says. It says that Eve ate of the fruit first, she was deceived, gave to her husband, and, but the issue is that she was deceived first. 
And so she fell first. In other words, she was more vulnerable in the sense to the, to the, the, serpent's, um, the serpent's deception, if you will. But isn't it interesting that in America, 93% of all of our prisoners, all people who are imprisoned in America, are males. Only 7% of our prison, only 7% of our prisoners are female. That violent crimes, men constitute 99.6% of all violent crimes. Women only constitute four-tenths of a percent of violent crimes in America. What's my point? Women are inherently more righteous. Statistics speak for themselves. Like, if you're concerned about men and who, who's most deceived, I mean, we can agree that Eve was in the Bible, but in these days, I would, I would say that it's the men who don't have great discernment. We're the ones who are filling the prisons. And I wonder what would happen, and again, this is all subjective. This isn't in the Bible. This is Chris's opinion. He's just talking what Chris does talk. If women would have co-reigned with men from the beginning of time, I wonder what would have happened to wars. Because women are inherently not violent. I say, well, I know someone was. Well, she's one of the four-tenths of a percent. <laughs> There's always an exception. You know, you can't stand up here and say anything about anybody. You know, I could say, well, you know, men, <laughs> I said this last time, I said, you know, just because a man can beat up a woman and someone yelled, well, I know a woman can whip your butt. <laughs> I know many women that can whip my butt. But as a general statement, I think we'd agree that men are generally physically stronger. That's the point. You're not going to make one statement that's going to fit everybody. But, and I, I think that we'd agree that men are generally more violent. You know, one of the things I want to say to women, man, I am so far, I maybe just screw up those notes and just keep going. <laughs> the, the challenge is, is that when women, when women feel oppression and they react, they typically lead as men instead of as women. We don't, we don't, listen, we don't need more masculine leaders. We need, we need matriarchs. We need you to bring the other side of us, the peace we're missing. It's so, it's, it's disheartening when we have this huge hole in the way that we lead, men, if we can just, if we can just be honest. And then when a, a woman has to she has to become a man in the way she leads to be valued. And we end up without the benefit of really having a woman leading because we've taught her how to be a man. You mean, well, she's supposed to be like not strong? You know, you know the challenge I have about some of this, this stuff is in the, in the 80s, man, you know, a strong woman was considered someone who had a Jezebel spirit. And I can tell you, I've seen a Jezebel spirit on way more men than I've ever seen on women. So, I mean, if you had a deep personality and you were a woman and you actually wanted to lead, I was a Jezebel spirit. And it's just another way to oppress women. I personally am tired of it. So I, I want to deal with, um, with one here. 
of the challenges. Are you at 1 Corinthians 11? Okay. Paul begins with, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Now I praise you. We read this last week, but I, I want to just start here. I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold fast to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man. Man is the head of woman, and God is the head of Christ. Every man that has something on his head while he's praying or prophesying, everybody say praying or prophesying, disgraces his head. But every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying, say praying or prophesying, I'm having you do that for a reason, um, disgraces her head, for she's one and the same with the woman who shaved, who shaved her head. Now, just a little history. Um, in Corinth, um, which is, was the seat of, by the way, Greek mythology, um, when a woman was uh, a prostitute, she would shave her head. So, like, you know, even though prostitution's illegal in our country, you know, it's illegal in San Francisco, you drive down the street, if you've ever been in San Francisco, you drive down the street and you know who the prostitutes are because they dress a certain way. Are, are you following me? So that you can actually tell who the prostitutes are. So even though it's illegal, if you want to buy a woman, you can just tell by the way she's marketing herself, if you will, that she's a prostitute. Well, in Corinth, if a woman was a prostitute, she shaved her head. And when she shaved her head, you knew that she was for sale. So Paul says, listen, if a woman isn't covered, verse 5, every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head, for she's one and the same as the woman who shaved her head. So you, you understand the connotation there? Okay, for if a woman does not cover her head, let her also have her hair cut off. But if it's a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off or have her head shaved, let her cover her head. Now, as you read on, you'll, you'll, you'll realize that he's actually not talking physically about covering her. In other words, long hair isn't going to fix the problem. You, you, we understand that he's talking about order here, okay? Okay, for the, the man, um, verse 7, for a man ought to have his head, I'm sorry, for a man not, start over, for a man ought to not have his head covered, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man did not originate from woman, but woman from man. For indeed man was not created for woman's sake, but woman for man's sake. Therefore the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Everybody say, because of the angels. Now, if you stop right there, that's, that's pretty deep right there. But I'd like to make sure that we at least read the next verse so we have some context how Paul brings this to a close. However, everybody say however. In the Lord, there is neither woman, neither is woman independent of man, nor man independent of woman. For as the woman originates from the man, so also man has his birth from the woman, and all things originate from God. Judge for yourself, is it proper for, for a woman to pray to God without her hair or without her head uncovered? Okay, so he makes this case, and here's the case he's, he's making. He's saying, listen, God is the head of Christ. Christ is the head of man. Man is the head of woman. Okay, and he's saying there is, there is an order. There, there is an order. And he's saying, listen, if a woman it will not receive a covering, and he's, he's not so concerned in this day, her hair would have been a symbol of that, but his point isn't the symbol. His point is that if she will not receive covering, in other words, if she will not be under authority, then she's like a prostitute. She's like somebody who, um, you get the idea. And he said, and so he goes through this whole thing, 
And then he makes this statement, though. He said, however, in the Lord, neither is woman independent of man or man independent of woman. And so he says, listen, this is the general, this is how creation, this is creation order. There was God, there was Christ, there was man, there was woman. However, in the Lord, we are interdependent. In the Lord, man isn't independent of woman, and woman isn't independent of man. And so he begins to say, listen, there is no male and female in Christ. So in the Lord, there, there is, there inter, in, without the Lord, without the Lord, woman is dependent on man. But in the Lord, they're interdependent. Are you with me? And so, and then, and it goes on. Now, I'm just going to share with you where the confusion comes because, so that's 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Now, it's important that you realize that this is in the book of Corinthians. In, in, actually, in the book of 1 Corinthians, and the author of this book is Paul, right? Okay, now, did you notice that the subject here, I mean, what brings this up is there must have been a question, like he's answering a question. And the question must have had something to do with women praying and prophesying. Because he says, I mean, out of the blue, listen, if a woman prays or prophesies, she has to be under a covering. Are you with me? For the sake of the angels. Now, what does that have to do with it? And he says, listen, if, she doesn't, if she's not under a covering, then she needs to just shave her head. She just needs to let everybody know. She needs to let the angels know she's not under a covering. Why is that? Because the angels are the ones who fulfill our prayers and carry out our prophecies. So the angels look for people who are in right order, and when you're in right order, the, uh, in other words, when you prophesy, let's just say whatever, whatever it is. If you prophesy, this, this mountain shall be removed. Who actually removes the mountain? The angels. It's the angels in the, vis, in the invisible realm. It's the angels who are actually fulfilling your prayers. I'm sorry, they're, uh, they're answering your prayers and fulfilling your prophecies. In the invisible realm, it's the angelic uh, host that are actually servants of those who receive salvation. Are you, are you following me? So when the, for instance, when, this, uh, when Jesus encounters this Roman centurion, and he, he says, my servant's sick, and Jesus says, I'll go to your house and heal him, and the servant said, the, I'm sorry, the, the centurion says, you don't have to come to my house, because I can see that you're a man under authority. You're a man under authority. Are you following me? And I'm a man under authority. So what he's saying is, listen, I understand how this works. You're a man under authority, and I understand authority because I'm a man under authority. And I say to this one, go, and he goes. And I say to this one, come, and he comes. So you don't need to go to my house. Listen, you don't physically need to go to my house because all you need to do is speak the word. And when you speak the word, and what's he saying? I can see that you aren't alone. <laughs> listen, you're not doing all this stuff by yourself. See, when you speak, there's, listen, when I speak, listen, when I speak, the soldiers do what I say. They don't do what I say because they're afraid of me. They do what I say because they're afraid of Caesar. All of Caesar's armies are with me. And so when I say to this one, go, he goes. He goes not because he's afraid of me, but because he understands that I'm under authority and I have all the armies of Caesar and all the authority of Caesar with, is with me. 
this Roman centurion, and he says to Jesus, and I can see that you are a man under authority. I can see. And Jesus said, I haven't seen faith like this even in Israel. What does the guy see? The guy can see into the invisible. And he says, when you speak the word, my servant will be healed. What is, listen, this guy, this guy lives in time and space. Come on. This, this is a natural man. He lives in time and space. And you know, most of us, I mean, I, I don't know how all this stuff works in the invisible. I'm sure that you don't either. I mean, I know pieces. But this man has this revelation that when Jesus speaks the word, because he's under authority, that he has a host that actually carry out. Because he says, as I'm under authority, I see you're under authority. And I have soldiers that go, and you have soldiers that go. Your soldiers that go, he's not saying, listen, I, listen you don't have to go. Listen, you don't have to come to my house. Because I can see your man under authority. Send one of your disciples. No, he didn't say, listen, you can just send one of your guys. He's not talking about it. He's saying you can send one of your guys. <laughs> you can send one of your guys that no one else can see, but I can see them. And Paul's saying the same thing in, here in Corinthians. He's saying, listen, when a woman is praying or prophesying, she has to have a symbol that she's under authority for the sake of the angels. Why? Because when she prays and she prophesies and the angels can see that she's in right order with God and with man, if you will, the angels carry out her prophecies and fulfill, fulfill her prophecies and carry out her, her prayers. Okay, now, here's, here's what's confusing. Turn to 1 Corinthians 14, and if you're familiar with the book, which we don't have lots of time to do this, 1 Corinthians 12 Begins with now concerning spiritual gifts. I don't want you to be unaware. So that's the subject. So 1 Corinthians 12 opens up the subject of spiritual gifts. You following me? 1 Corinthians 13, which you remember there was no chapters when this was written. 1 Corinthians 13 reminds us that love needs to be in the center of everything we do. And 1 Corinthians 14 begins with pursue love yet earnestly desire spiritual gifts. Are you following me? Okay. You may all prophesy. Everybody, uh, verse 3 the one who prophesies speaks to men for edification, exhortation, or comfort. The one who speaks in tongues edifies himself. The one who prophesied edifies the church. Now I wish that you all spoke in tongues, but even more that you would prophesy. Greater is the one who prophesies the one who speaks in tongues unless he interprets. Verse uh, 6. Now, brethren, if I come to you... I'm sorry, I'm looking for a verse. I'll find it um, here in a second. I won't find it. I'll just quote it. Um, it's here. Um, he says, you can all prophesy one by one so that all may be edified. Okay, now, we get down to, he's talking about the prophetic ministry and he's contrasting tongues in the prophetic ministry because the Corinthians have really, um, they have uh, really emphasized tongues and he's like, tongues are fine, but when people come in, that don't, they don't, they're, not, they're unbelievers and you're all like, People, different people are getting up and speaking in tongues and there's no interpretation. They're just like, you guys are nuts. And so, he, by the way, he's not talking about the public worship tongues, anything like that. He's talking about people getting up and giving messages with no interpretation. And so, and he, and he goes on to talk about the fact that they should be actually prophesying. Greater is the one who prophesies. Verse 27, he's still talking about it. If anyone speaks in a tongue, it should be by two or three, and there should be an interpreter. Verse 28, there's no interpreter, then let him keep silent. Verse 29, let two or three prophets speak, let the others pass judgment. And he goes on like that. So I just want, to get, I just want you to understand 
that this subject is prophecy, right? And in 1 Corinthians 11, he's already made it clear that a woman can pray or prophesy as long as she's in right order. And I'll talk about right order in just a few minutes, but if you'll just follow me. So he's already established three chapters earlier that as long as a woman is in right order, she can pray or prophesy. The subject from 1 Corinthians 12 to 1 Corinthians 14 is, it's the gifts of the Spirit, but specifically prophecy. Even though he lists the gifts of the Spirit in, in 12, he actually only, he only deals with tongues and prophecy throughout the, two, throughout the three chapters. And so in chapter 3, he's talking about prophecy, and he says this, uh, verse 33, Verse 31, you can all prophesy, there it is right there, you can all prophesy one by one so that you all may learn, you all may be exhorted. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. For God is not the God of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches and with all the saints. The women, verse 34, women are to keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but they are, sub, but they are to be subject, just as the law says. If they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it's improper for a woman to speak in church. Okay, I'm just seeing if there's anything else that has to do with women specifically there. Um, That's a very confusing verse because of this. In 1 Corinthians 11, he's already established that women can pray and prophesy. And then he says you can all prophesy, and it's obvious that his audience is both male and female because he addresses women in 11. So here, here's, where I, here's where I'm going. If Paul was restricting all women from speaking in church, in other words, if his rule was women can never speak in church anywhere at any time, then you have... You've got a real struggle because Paul empowers women, and we're going to look at some of those verses in the, next, in the next weeks. Paul empowers women several times, and the book of Acts gives us a history that women were very much involved in prophecy. As a matter of fact, the verse that initiated prophetic ministry was actually Acts 2.17, and what does it say? In the last days I'll pour out my spirit. This is Peter quoting Joel. In the last days I'll pour out my spirit upon what? Yeah, and the key word is all there, all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. And even upon your bond servants, in those days I'll pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. So with the, the, um, the initiation of New Testament prophetic ministry in Acts 2.17 specifically mentions women. Paul in 1 Corinthians 11 specifically says if women are in right order, they can pray and prophesy and the angels will recognize their authority. You're saying, well, you're not answering the 1 Corinthians 14. I'm simply saying that if that was the last word on women ministering inside of church, then then the restriction would be women shouldn't speak. But I'm saying that even Paul speaks in a paradoxical way in the sense that he empowers them in one chapter and disempowers them in another. And so I'm saying there's specific cultural issues, especially in Ephesus, where Timothy is the apostle in Ephesus. When Paul writes to Timothy, he's writing to the church at Ephesus, really, because Paul's the leader of the church at Ephesus, and in Corinth. 
Now, there may be some other things, and uh, Kevin was giving me some insight a few minutes ago that we'll look into, but my point is, is that if the, if, the, if the rule was women should not have any authority over men ever, and women shouldn't speak in church, you've got to struggle because, because women are empowered in several scriptures in church, in churches, and, in, and by the apostles, and they served as prophetesses in the Old Covenant. And a prophetess had authority. <laughs> Deborah was a judge, so she had political and spiritual authority, and God gave it to her. Are, are you following me? I'm simply saying that you can't take you know, uh, three, three specific areas that Paul restricts women and say, well, he meant that to be, uh, uh, he meant that to be multi-generational, that for, forever women should not be allowed to have authority, they should not be allowed to teach, and they should have, not be allowed to speak in church. Because Paul didn't practice that. And I'll show you as, as, um, as time goes on. You know, I think, there, I think that most men want to release women. They just don't want to be anti-God. They just don't want to be found... I'm talking about Christians. I believe that most Christians have a good heart, and they really, they actually want to empower women, but they don't want to be unscriptural. Let me go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 11 for a minute, and I, I want to just... I want to ask a question. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul talks about creation order. God is the head of Christ. Christ is the head of man. Man is the head of woman. Okay. The question in my mind isn't, does man have authority over woman? The question is, how does he use his authority? Because if Christ, if, if God is over Christ and Christ is over man, and they are an example of how we are to treat people whom we have authority or whom we cover, and I'm using those two words interchangeably, which in, in, they're not interchangeable in every circumstance, but they are in 1 Corinthians 11. If, 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 if God is our role model, in other words, the way that God treats Christ and the way that Christ treats man is our example as men of how we're supposed to treat people who we cover, then we have a very interesting model because in, uh, in Ephesians chapter 1, it says this, verse 18, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know what the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance and in the saints, what is the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe. These are in accordance with the working, the strength of his, might, of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in heavenly places, far above all rule, authority, power, and dominion, and every name that's named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And listen to this, verse 22. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now let's go down to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love, with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive with Christ, and he raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places with Christ. Okay, so 
Paul's point is, is that God is over Christ. Okay, how did God treat Christ? He raised him up and seated him in heavenly places. Okay, now Christ is over man. How did Christ deal with man? He, he took us and he seated us, not in heavenly places, he seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ. In other words, he said, and Romans 8 confirms this, you co-reign with me. You are co-heirs with me. So the point is, does, do, do men have authority over women? The, that's the wrong question. The question is, what do you do with it? And if Christ is our example, in other words, if Christ, if I'm over woman like Christ is over me, then I have to take his example and say, I am here to make sure that she's empowered. If I have authority over her, I'm to use my authority to empower her, not to oppress her. Now, it gets even better. Now, you have, oh, I forgot to say this. This is the main point. Paul writes Corinthians, which we said, listen, 1 Corinthians 11, he empowers women in in order. 1 Corinthians 14, he restricts women. We can't get around that. You know, you can say, well, Paul didn't write that or whatever. Well, then, you know, maybe he didn't write any of the book then. I mean, if you look up commentaries, the stuff that the commentary, the people who write the commentaries don't like, they're like, well, it's, it's disputed whether Paul really said that. I mean, it's disputed whether Paul said anything then. I mean, just cross out whatever you don't like and just make that your stance. Well, I couldn't have said that. I don't agree with it. But what we can say is when Paul says it, when Paul says it this way in one circumstance and he says it this way in another circumstance, we have to say this is circumstantial. Because if Paul always restricted women, then we have, it's, it's like this. Hmm. Homosexuality is never spoken as a positive in the Bible. Anywhere. Listen, I'm not, I'm not like mad at someone who has that struggle. I, I, I'm using it as an example. I'm not mad at them. I, they need to be loved, and when we, when we become haters or law keepers, I think we just perpetuate the problem. I'm simply using it. Uh, it, it homosexuality doesn't have a contrasting positive scripture. Are you following me? In other words, there isn't a scripture that says, well, homosexuality is, is wrong, I restrict uh, homosexual behavior, uh, homosexuality is immoral, homosexuality is this and that. And then, and then you know, another writer, or the same writer, writes over here that in this context I allow homosexuality. Are you following me? In other words, the reason why I am adamant that homosexuality is always wrong is because it doesn't have a paradoxical scripture. It doesn't have any place that says, well, in this context, it's okay. Now, I understand that there are some people that try to use Jonathan and David's um, relationship as a homosexual relationship. You have to make it say that because there isn't one word about a sexual encounter in there. Okay, so if you want to stretch things, then, okay, just stretch anything. Just make the Bible say whatever, whatever you want it to say. But if you're going to have integrity and you're going to say, okay... You know, I, I believe the book, and when, I, when the book disagrees with my philosophy, one of us have to change, and it won't be the book. So I'm saying that a homosexual lifestyle is always spoken of as wrong. 
Just as, if you want, maybe I should say, so is lying. So is murder. So is adultery. There's no counter scripture that says, lying's okay in certain circumstances. You know, uh, uh, adultery's all right. You know, listen, if your wife isn't, you know, taking care of you, she's not doing her duty, it's okay to, there, there is no counter scripture that says adultery's okay. Are you following me? But when you get into the subject of women, you have all kinds of examples where women were treated powerfully, were allowed to teach, were called apostles and prophets, and in other cases, restricted. So my point is, that has to have, that has to be circumstantial because there's paradox scripture. Are you with me? So what we like to do is, if we don't, if we're afraid of women, or whatever, we could be anything, but right now we're talking about women. If we're afraid of women, then we just take the, 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 the three scriptures that, uh, that restrict women, and we go, there it is, right there. What else is there? Are, are you getting what I'm saying? And we're like, there's no such thing as circumstance, and we're just, like, just going to take three scriptures, and we're going to make it our doctrine for all women. And like, well, that's really strange, because the apostles didn't do that. Okay, so now, we still have Paul speaking, who in 1 Corinthians 14, and, and next session, next time uh, I speak, we'll take on some of Timothy's, some of what he shared with Timothy. But in 1 Corinthians 14, we have enough restriction right there. I don't allow a woman to, I don't allow a woman to, um, to speak in church. Let her ask her husband if she has, wants anything to learn. Now, in Ephesians chapter 5, which was written by the same author, are you understanding why I'm grabbing this book? Okay. Verse 21, am I boring you? Verse 21, be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. That's verse 21, be subject to one another. Everybody say, be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as in the Lord. Now, do you understand that before he told wives to be subject to their husbands, that he's already told them both to be subject to one another? Okay, just... Maybe I should say it again. Be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Wives, be subject to your own husband as unto the Lord. Okay, they've both been told to be subject to one another before a wife was ever singled out. Okay, now, for the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is head of the church, which we read in 11, right? 1 Corinthians 11. He himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so wives ought to be subject to their own husbands in everything. And we're like, okay, well that feels oppressive. Until you read on. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water by the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle, any such thing, that she be holy and blameless. So husbands also, also ought to love their wives as they love their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. No one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Okay, so how are, so here he's talking to men about their wives, and what does he say? He's saying, men, you should die for your wife. You should die, listen, Christ died for you, and you should die for her. Now, do you feel any, did you notice that the woman is never told to die for, for the man? Did you notice that they're both instructed to, to um, um, I'm sorry, what's the word? 
They're both instructed to be subject to one another. The woman gets, he does emphasize it to the woman, but he, the, but he never tells the woman. So he says, listen, man and woman, you need to be subject to one another. Women, listen, for sure you need to be subject to your man. Okay? But he never goes back and says, women, you need to die for your man. He only tells the man to die for the woman. There's a value statement there. Do you understand that he spoke this in a, in a, in a pre-war Afghan culture where women were possessions, and now he's saying, listen, husband, this woman is so valuable, you better die for her. That's a value statement. He doesn't tell the woman, listen, you should die for the man. Listen, when the president of the United States, if the president of the United States is ever attacked, what does security do? Did they throw the president out there? <laughs> Did they expect the president of the United States to protect the CIA agents? No, they expect the CIA to protect who? Who's dying for who? <laughs> Why? <laughs> it's a value statement. I'm saying, well, um, wait a second. Well, is, are we more valuable than Christ? No, but we couldn't die for ourselves. We were stuck. <laughs> we tried that. didn't work. So he commands the man to die for the woman, but he doesn't command the woman to die for the man. Ever. Men. And then he says... You should treat her like you treat your own flesh. And then he says, this is how I want you to treat your own flesh. Nourish and cherish it. The word cherish there in the Greek is, is interpreted in Timothy to um, tenderly care for. You should tenderly care for your woman. This is radical stuff. This is radical stuff. Women, if you realize the context, you would realize this is so counterculture. This has been so shocking to the church at Ephesus. So what I'm getting at is this. Paul tells the men, die for your woman. He's the same guy who said, I don't allow women to speak or exercise authority. It's like, wait a second. He's got men dying for them. He's got men nourishing and cherishing them. He's got men exalting them as like Christ exalted the church. And so I'm saying there's a contrast, which means that Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 14 are contextual. Like there's circumstances. There's things, maybe we don't know what the circumstances are, but, that, the, but women were often treated differently by the same guy who said that. Are you following me? Okay, here we go. Here's um, a couple more and then we'll be done. Acts 18. Why don't you turn there so you believe me? <laughs> now, a Jew named Apollos, an Alexandrian by birth, an eloquent man, came to Ephesus and he was mighty in the scriptures. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in spirit, he was speaking and teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus being acquainted only with the baptism of John, and he began to speak out boldly in the synagogue. But listen to this. But Priscilla, everybody say, but Priscilla, Priscilla. and Aquila heard him, and they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. 
Now, you'll notice that she is intentionally named first. And if you don't think it's intentional, you just go through the Bible. For instance, you'll notice that Barnabas and Paul, are, Barnabas is always named per, first until Paul comes into his apostleship. And when Paul comes into his apostleship, he's named first and Barnabas is named second. So order is, is important in Scripture. It says that Apollos was mighty in the Scriptures, but he was only acquainted with the baptism of John. In other words, he didn't know anything about the Holy Spirit, if you can just say it in plain English. He didn't, know nothing, he didn't know anything about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And what happened? Priscilla and Aquila took him aside. And what did they do? They taught him. A woman taught a man who was eloquent in the Scriptures. It's in the book. Acts 21, verse 8. On the next day, we left from Caesarea and entering the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, we stayed with him. Now, this man had four virgin daughters who were prophetesses. Now, just for, just, some of your Bibles say, who prophesied. How many of you have Bibles that say who prophesied? Well, first of all, that wouldn't even be, that wouldn't make honorable mention in the book of Acts. I mean, it wouldn't, be, it wouldn't make honorable mention that your daughters prophesied. I mean, second, for, I mean, Acts 2 makes that for sure. It says, and your sons and daughters will prophesy. How many of you understand that people, that everybody prophesied? All people were prophesying. I mean, um, the Holy Spirit fell on people and they were speaking in tongues and prophesying. So, and, and, um, in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul says you can all prophesy one by one. So the fact that the girls, that his daughters prophesied, wouldn't have made the Bible. Especially the book of Acts. What I'm, what I'm saying to you is the word is actually they were prophetesses. Some of the translators have a problem with that. Because they're trying to reconcile how they could be prophetesses and still not have authority over men. But you have a problem even if you, call, if you say they prophesy according to 1 Corinthians 14. Unless you just let them do it outside. <laughs> I don't know if you're getting what I'm saying. A prophetess is part of the fivefold ministry. He gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors, some as teachers to equip the saints to do the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain the unity of faith, the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature man to the measure of the stature that belongs to the fullness of Christ. Okay, what I'm getting at is this. If, the, if you take women and you make them prophetesses, then suddenly you make them part of the fivefold ministry, which is the governing body of the church. I would think they'd have to talk. I don't know how they equip the saints unless they're using sign language. That's why some of the translators refuse to call them prophetesses and only call them, only say they prophesied because they don't know what to do with the fact that four, that four daughters of Philip were actually prophetesses. But listen, we already have it in the Old Testament. The Old Testament had prophetesses. Are, are you with me? So... A, a, a more restrictive covenant wouldn't be more empowering to women than a better covenant, especially when Jesus paid for their sins 
and release them from, and, and your husband shall rule over you. It's no longer your husband shall rule over you. It's now your husband has authority to empower you. <laughs> I mean, Paul says this to Timothy. I'm mindful of the faith that was in you. It was first in your grandmother and in your mother. He acknowledges that his faith came from a woman. You're like, that's no big deal. That's because you live in the 21st century. Okay. I'll probably need to land. I'll finish with this John chapter 19. Well, maybe we should do uh, John 5 first. Let's, let's just take a second. Sorry. You can leave. You need to. Oh, it's two. Hey, whatever, you ought to be up here. All right. <laughs> On the third day, there was a wedding in Canaan in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there, and both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman. <laughs> I like that. That's what I say all the time. Yo, woman. Because I can't remember anyone's name, so men are dude. Hey, dude. Women, woman. Jesus said to her, woman, what does that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to his servants, whatever he says, do it. And you realize he did it. He listened to a woman. His mother changed the timing of his season for miracles. In John 19... Verse 26, Jesus is hanging on the cross. We'll go to verse 25. Therefore the soldiers did these things, by st but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother, his mother's sister Mary, the wife of Clovius, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus then saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. From that hour on, the disciple took her into his household. And after this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished, to fulfill scripture, said, I am thirsty, and so on and so forth. Jesus' last act before the resurrection was to take care of his mother. He said to John, said to his mother, You see, John, behold your son. John, see my mother? Behold your mother. Jesus took care of his mother. I think the next, uh, next my next session is going to be on the way that Jesus interacted with women. As, as Bill says, Jesus is perfect theology. It's my goal that we get this right. I want to release the world's women from oppression. I, w 
You know, I honestly believe this. I'm just talking now. I honestly believe that if we released women from oppression in the church, that it would spread like wildfire and it would stop every religious entity that oppresses women. See, if women were free in the church of Jesus Christ, there would be a huge contrast between living for Christ and living as a Muslim or any other religion. Because people would see. How, how many of you know that one half of our population is women? When women see what it's like to be honored and valued, nourished and cherished and empowered, they'd go, I don't want to be that. <laughs> but as long as as there is any level of oppression for women in the body of Christ, the contrast is not there. And when women want to be powerful, they move into the feminist movement and they move completely out of any spiritual culture. Religion inherently oppresses women. Sooner or later, they find a reason to make it okay to enslave women. And I'm telling you, guys, I'm talking to the men right now, I think it's our job to figure out how to cover women the way Christ covers us. And how to say to the woman, hey baby, sit next to me. Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. That's how God created Christ. And, and Christ said, hey baby, Sit at my right hand. <laughs> you can co-reign with me. And when we get authority, we go, <laughs> I'm in charge here. And I think this is just a test. See, I think that you can always tell how secure you are by how you treat people that you're stronger than. I'm only talking about physically stronger than. Because we have... A, we have we have a culture, and I'm talking about Bethel now, I'm talking about globally. We have a culture that empowers the people who are physically the strongest, not people who are anointed. If I can beat you up, I'm in charge. And I would tell you that that's a Gentile. Jesus said, this is the way the Gentiles do it. They lord it over people. I'm telling you, if you're in charge... Be the servant of everyone. So men, if you are in charge, if you're over a woman and that's the way you see it, then it's your job to lay down your life and be the servant of all of them. I don't like that word. I think that women should be quiet in church and if they want to know anything, they should learn from their husbands. Oh, if that's what you believe, then why aren't you teaching them at home then? It's funny that we, that we want to practice part of it, not the other. And I'll show you the next time we, we share that culturally, there was a reason why Paul didn't want women to teach because they'd never been taught. And how many of you know that you have to be a... You have to be a learner before you can be a teacher. Okay, so where are we going to go from here? Why don't we all...
Why don't we, what are we going to do? Wait, wait, I have to think. Sorry, this is deep. You know, that last week's message, I, I, well, I've been here 13 years. I don't know how long we've been podcasting and then webcasting, but probably five or six, something like that at least. And I got probably four to 500 Facebooks, emails, and private letters. Not a single negative one, not one, not a single negative letter. Not one, not even one, not even a yeah, but letter, which I, you know, I, I understand that when you're working through these minefields, that's not always easy and you can make mistakes. I mean, I, I'll, any, any mistake I make in this series, I'll do my best to clean it up, but I didn't get one negative email, letter, Facebook, anything, and that is probably at least five times the amount of, of, uh, emails, Facebooks, whatever, that I've ever received from any message I've ever, ever spoke, anywhere, anywhere, which tells me that there is an incredible hunger, and by the way, it wasn't just women who wrote me, it was, it was two-thirds women, but I'm really, I was really surprised, the men are hungry to empower women, they just don't want to be unbiblical, and so I think that there, it tells me there's a real Mordecai spirit on our land, and we want to say, listen, ladies, we, we're working through this. You just got to be patient with this. I, I mean it sincerely. You've got to be patient with us. We're working through this together, and what we, we want to say to you, go, girl, the, you know, this is overused, but you were born for this. You were born for this, and so when we're, we're working through this together. It's our goal to empower you in a way that doesn't violate the Scriptures and I already think we have the heart of God. So um, why don't we all just stand and why don't you just grab a hand. You know, we have just wonderful examples in my mind, like you can, Jesus said you can tell the, the, the tree by the fruit. And I think truth should produce fruit. Are you following me? And you know, we have Amy Simple McPherson, who was the founder of the Foursquare movement. We, in, in, my, in my life, I, I happen to personally know very well Heidi Baker, who I'm on her board, who is an apostle. And who's planting thousands of churches. And yes, she's not doing it by herself. But there's no question that she's the senior leader of that team. And, you, you know, um, I, I don't, uh, whatever your, your political convictions are, it, you know, I, I don't say this as a political statement, but there's no question that Sarah Palin is somebody who is definitely anointed to lead. Um, I, I don't say it as a political statement. I say it as an observation. And by the way, I... I got an opportunity to meet her, and there's quite, it was quite, um, she's quite a stunning woman. Both, um, she's very beautiful, of course, but what I mean by that is there's a presence about her that's obviously godly. And so, um, and we can name, just name woman after woman, but I'm just talking about people that 
either I know personally or I, I know their history. And I'm like, I look at that tree and I'm like, there's awesome fruit. I would say that Africa is, uh, the continent of Africa is probably being impacted. Well, let me say this, this part I know for sure. The country of Mozambique has never had a revival like Heidi and Roland Baker, in, in that order, Heidi and Roland Baker are bringing to Africa. And I don't say that to dishonor Roland. Um, he, would, he'd, he would say it the same way. And so I look at the fruit and I go, God is blessing that. God knows what he's doing. And so we'll have to figure out how to get in that stream and find ways. What happens when, when we allow women to be powerful? Well, look what happens when we empower a woman. It changes a continent. <laughs> so, um, let's, you have hands, grab. We're just going to pray right now. And what I want us to pray for, actually, is I want us to pray that the Lord would give us wisdom. I want us to pray for the Lord to give us wisdom. I don't want uh, to create um, some kind of, you know, I, I, I'm not interested in being a heretic. Or I'm not interested in being uh, anti the scriptures so I can promote um, anything. I, I want the Lord to give us wisdom in these next weeks so that when we get done with um, when we get when we finish this teaching, it will create a foundation for everyone to scripturally, truthfully, with integrity, empower women to lead, to teach, to 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 that there would be no male and female in Christ, that we would be gender blind because we're supposed to be, not because we're just doing whatever we want in the name of this is our culture and. The book's outdated. You understand? I'm not. That isn't me. I can't do that. I can't. I can't go to sleep at night thinking I've said something. God said the opposite. And I, I don't live like that. So, Holy Spirit, we just pray. I want you to pray right now for wisdom. I want you to pray for wisdom for the person on your left and right. That we're going to create. God is going to create a very powerful culture, and we're going to get back to Genesis in the book of Genesis, where He gave dominion over male and female, over woman and man. Lord, we just release that right now. We release, we release wisdom. We, we release revelation. We release understanding that our daughters, our mothers, Lord, the women among us, our sisters, would be powerful people. Lord, that we just call them into this army. We call them into this family and we commission them to sit with us as we got to sit with you. We commission our women and we, and we, and we say to you, we've been given authority and we release you to have authority to sit with us, to co-reign with us. Father, we, we pray that you would cause us to have wisdom. And I, Lord, I pray that women who, as they come into leadership, that they would learn how to lead as a woman. And to be honest, there isn't that many examples. And Lord, that this, out of this church and out of this movement, 
would come world-class leaders, world-class woman leaders who lead and fulfill a role that we've needed for thousands of years and that literally the planet would be transformed by the matriarchal anointing that you placed on them that you have not placed on us. And that motherhood would return to the planet and there would be Abraham and Sarah, the queen and the father of a multitude. Lord, we just pray for that right now in Jesus' name. We just pray for that in Jesus' name. And Father, we pray for women to learn how to honor without feeling oppressed. That's too, that needs to happen too. We pray for that, Lord, that, that, that we could submit to one another in a way that isn't oppressive, that's actually empowering, that we would be knitted together as a body, as a, as a family. Thank you, Lord. Father, I pray for the husbands in this place that are just struggling, you know, like me, I was, just, I was raised by two uh, oppressive stepfathers who did not know how to treat a woman. Lord, and I, I confess that my, the example, the way that I learned to lead was not, it was not rooted in Christ. And Lord, well, I'm, you know, I, I'm learning, guys, I'm learning how to lead the way that Christ leads me. And I pray for, for my brothers to, be, to have wisdom, to learn how to lead their families and their, their wives, and, and how to teach their sons how to treat their wives. Lord, we pray that this oppressive cycle, this man's club would end. We hope you have enjoyed this session. For more information, please visit our website at www.moralrevolution.com.